Okay. Close your Bibles. Get out a sheet of paper and see if we can remember what we did last time. There's a quiz. Pop quiz. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. You didn't tell us to come prepared. Pop quiz is a pop quiz. <laughs> what are some of the main things that we tried to communicate last time? I gave you an introduction to this whole area of creation science. What was the main thing that you got out of it? Maybe it wasn't the main thing I was trying to communicate. The thing that I could remember <laughs> was something that would be very helpful in the argument for creationists. Um, that I was telling my sister today, I got her to come to this, and that when they're saying that evolution is a fact, that, that you would, what I remember is it's, it's the other people are, it's actually a theo, theoretical opinion. And it's, it's not a fact, it's not the truth, it's a theoretical, theoretical am I saying that? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And I'm going to show you today that it's a bad theory. Okay, what else? Anything else? What do you, what do you remember? Um, no matter which way would you compare creationism versus evolution, you say both take faith. They're both faith positions. And I laid the reasons for that is because of the nature of the study. Does anybody remember the nature of the study that we're doing? Supernatural? No. No. Remember I gave you two ways of do or two uh, areas of science? Naturalism. No. Historical science. Observational. Listen. Observational science. And repeatable. Which is repeatable as opposed to historical science. What we are dealing with in the Bible is we are predominantly dealing with historical science. They're a little bit different. You can use similar principles, in some cases the same principles, but the difference in historical, the study of historical science like archaeology, that's strictly a historical scientific endeavor. Criminology, I gave the example from criminology, reconstructing a crime scene. You can't repeat what happened in the past. All you can do is look at the traces left behind by events. That's very, very important. So we're dealing with events, creation, that occurred in ancient time. We're going to look at the Genesis Flood. Similarly, uh, much before a lot of recorded history, and any history, you try to reconstruct the facts based on the data that's available. We call those the traces of the event. So that's different from empirical or observational science, where you can observe what uh, you're studying through your microscope or whatever instruments or whatever tools you use. Very, very important. So I hope you got that distinction. And because you can't recreate the event, and all you're left with is the data, that's the traces, then you have to look at that data and evaluate it. So we're looking at the same data as the unbeliever. He's interpreting it from a different perspective and coming to different conclusions. The method of filling in the blanks. Mm -hmm. Yep, we're filling in the blanks because you, can't, you weren't there right. in these ancient events. The cops weren't there when the guy got shot. And there may not be a night witness. All you have is the blood spatter, platter on the wall, fingerprints, etc. You try to piece that together, and the fingerprints match 
that what's on the gun and match the person, et cetera, you build a case. And that's what we're doing. We're building a case or we're developing a model, you might say. And we're going to build on what we talked about last week. Okay? So that's very important. So another main point. What else did we stress last week? What another important area? Anyone remember? What struck you? Yes, very good. Difference between absolute truth and scientific truth. Scientific truth is absolute truth. True or false? False. False. You get an A. All right. She passed the pop quiz. (laughs) Scientific truth is probably the best means that man has come up with to arrive at truth, but it's not absolute. Why is it not absolute? Because man is involved in the scientific endeavor. What else? Science changes over time. And we're also, we only have limited information. We only have limited observations. Even in present time, the data that's available to observe is limited as well. And things change. Science today is radically different than what it was 100 years ago. We know a lot more. We've abandoned some even laws of science. We've abandoned them. So science continually changes, self-corrects. It's only a close approximation to truth. It's not absolute truth. So that's very important. Why? Why is that important in this whole discussion? Well, the discussion is absolute truth. So if things change, it can't be. Yeah, but why is that important? Why, why do we need to know that and stress that with people that we're entering a discussion? This claim is... These are okay. They claim, but it's based on the limited information that they have. But the main reason it's important is because science today has departed from where it was initially, at least modern science. Modern science came from a biblical worldview where believers were motivated to study the natural realm Because of some of the passages I gave you last time. In other words, ask the beasts of the field. You can consult nature. I didn't give you Romans 1, but Romans 1 verse 20 tells us that God has revealed himself through that which has been made, through the creation. So you can learn some things from the creation, that's general revelation, but it needs interpretation and you need absolute truth to interpret what you observe in the natural realm. So that's a big reason why it's important. Okay? Well, let's just to kind of get us into what we're going to talk about today. But we start always with Genesis 1.1. And this is only a theological statement, right? No. No. It's even more of a scientific statement than a theological statement. It's every much a scientific statement as anything you'll find in a physics, chemistry, biology book. We talked about that last time. So I gave you an introduction. Today we're going to focus on the weakness of evolution. I was going to try and combine the two parts, creation versus evolution, and I called up Dennis, and Dennis says, ah, you got as much time as you want. So we may be here for a couple of years or so. (laughs) (laughs) So I split it up. Uh, We're just going to look at evolution today. 
And I think this is important because the culture in which we live in, that's all there is. So you need to kind of know the ins and outs. And if you have children or grandchildren, you need to kind of alert them. The key question to ask the evolutionist, give me the evidence that supports the theory. Give me the evidence. And what I want to convince you today is the evidence is not there. It's a theory. It's a bad theory at that. Next week, we'll look at the alternative. Science supports the idea that there has to be an intelligent designer It's described in the Bible. We call him God. That whole area, I started on a train of thought and then I missed the main point. That whole area of absolute truth, getting back here, that area is excluded from the scientific endeavor. So you don't consult scripture, which we believe is absolute truth. It's disallowed except for those scientists that are believers as well and believe in the inspiration of Scripture. So that's the focus of tonight, the weakness of evolution. Just to stress how important this is, out of the book, Evolution Change Over Time, there is no doubt, you doubters out there, (laughs) there is no doubt that living things have changed over time. How and why have living things changed? Today, scientists in their white robes know, they know certain things, that the answers to these questions lie in the process of evolution. It's accepted without much question today. And I can give you a hundred quotes like this. They're all over books that are written by evolutionists. So that's one, William Patent, and evolution says, evolution itself has long since passed out of the field of scientific controversy. It's not a controversial anymore. You flat earth people, you people that believe in fairy tales, we don't believe those things anymore. Quote goes on, there is no other subject on which scientific opinion, now that's that's honest, scientific opinion is so completely unanimous. And that's true. We're the doubters, we're the only ones. Last part of the quote, it is the one great truth we must surely know. And that's typical of what you'll read. This is what your children, grandchildren are receiving in the public schools or at UNM. This is the attitude. To question it, it's held unanimously. You're just goofy if you hold to anything different. The National Association, not of Baptist teachers, (laughs) but biology teachers, National Association of Biology Teachers, this is their statement. These are biology teachers. Diversity of life on Earth is the outcome of evolution, right off the bat there. An unsupervised, impersonal, no God, okay, unpredictable and natural process of temporal descent with genetic modification, kind of sophisticated language here, but really nothing true. Natural process of temporal descent with genetic modification that is affected by natural selection, important to evolution, chance, random processes, historical contingencies, and changing environments. That's their official statement, or it was at 
think I got that like 20 years ago. They might have modified it out. Anyway, so the essence. These, here's the two models. Two interpretations of the data. Two approaches. This is the evolution model. You've seen the evolution tree. Everything came about from a single cell. All life gradually evolved from one cell, which evolved from inert matter. In other words, you have non-living material, molecules, atoms. Somehow those organized themselves into the first cell. From that first cell, over millions of years, we have the progress of evolution. That's Darwinian evolution that is accepted today based on those quotes. So the model, basically, there are some elements to it. Number one, life came about by natural processes through chance, through random processes, nothing guiding, nothing directing, nothing organizing, just happened. And remember the fairy tale I told you last Time. It takes a lot, a lot of faith to believe that. Secondly, random, and this is important, we're going to talk about mutations tonight. Random mutations of genetic instructions. This is how it's supposed to come about. In fact, that's the mechanism. The way evolution works is you have to have mutations, changes in the genetic code. Today, one of the sciences that is totally demolishing evolution is genetics. Microbiology is totally destroying the idea of evolution. Okay? Thirdly, there's a struggle for existence. And by natural selection, the creatures that survive are those that are the fittest. And others supposedly are to die out. Okay? And there's also a fourth element to the evolution model that deals with the, the Earth and the geological formations. Geological formations were formed over billions of years. Joe? A question. If natural processes are through chance alone, and it's through mutations that are random... That's um, the mechanism. Yeah. How can you call it a science? Because science is... Testable, and if it's random, there's no way you can predict it. There's yeah, there's no way to, to, to reach any conclusions. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of logical problems with the theory of evolution. That's, that being a major one. Very good. Yeah. Whole idea of randomness goes against the whole, what she's saying, goes against the whole idea of the scientific endeavor that depends on repeatability and consistent consistency. You can expect one thing one day, and you can expect the same thing the next. You have laws of nature that uh, continue regardless of circumstances. So it's the, so opposite, of it's the opposite of the scientific endeavor. Very good. That's, that's a logical inconsistency of evolution. And here's the tree again. So you have the evolutionary tree, and if you plot it by time, you end up at the top with all of the different species that you can observe today. So this would be today at the top. Now I show that because I contrast it with our model, the biblical view, the biblical model. So that's evolution in its simple form. We believe that all things and all life came about by the acts of a creator, an outside agent a personal being that the Bible describes as God himself. That's the creation essence 
of the model. And we have corresponding aspects of this model. Number one, life is by direct actions of a creator. And these actions are described as miraculous from God speaking things into existence in six creative days. And we'll talk about that issue. That's another controversy that the unbelieving world will dispute as well. So life by direct actions of a creator. Secondly, organisms are separate and distinct creations. There's not a movement from one creature to another creature. That's evolution. This is the opposite. There's limits. There's lines that are not crossed or cannot be crossed. And there have not been any observed examples of the crossing over those lines. So it's a theory. It's an assumption. It's simply an idea. Thirdly, we believe that there's a degeneration of the six days of creation And that explains a lot of phenomenon in the natural realm. Degeneration after the fall of man will expand on that idea as well. So Genesis 3 is very, very important in the creation model. That also, obviously, because it's part of our revelation, part of revelation is denied by the secular unbelieving world. And to correspond with the geological time frame, we believe that geological formations by, were formed by a worldwide flood. And I'm going to give you, after we look at creation, we're going to look at the flood, and I'm going to give you the overwhelming evidence, scientific, scientific evidence for a worldwide, or we describe that as a universal flood. See the contrast in the two models? Two different, almost opposite ideas. This is our reconstruction based on the traces that are available. And primarily, a major source is absolute truth, because this is what Scripture teaches us. So we have guidance to interpret the data. Two different models. Most people have never heard of this one. Your children in a public school will not get that. A lot of... Christian schools, Christian colleges have compromised. I'm going to talk about that. Depending on how much time, we'll talk a little bit about a compromise. Let me just mention it up front since we're talking about the two models. A lot of Christians are tempted to try to put together the two. In other words, they say, well, I believe that the Bible speaks of God as a creator, but the evidence is settled in science. Scientists have uh, determined that evolution is true. Somehow, I don't want to look like a fool, and if science has determined this, then somehow I've got to fit the Bible into this idea here, and somehow maybe God, and this is very popular, by the way. In fact, this is more popular than our viewpoint. The viewpoint is, well, more than likely God used evolution to create And you take Genesis 1, a little bit more flexible, a little bit more allegorical, or a little bit more non-literal. What is that called? The welding together of a bad theory and an attempt to harmonize Scripture with it. It's got a name, and it comes in various forms. This is the most popular view. This is what you will encounter in your churches. Most people in your churches will hold to this view. What is it? What's it called? 
It's deception, yeah, but there's a more descriptive word for it. Hmm? Fake science? New age? Emergent church? Think of a word that puts God together with evolution. Progressive. That's one form of it. Progressive creationism. That's one form of the broader picture that I'm describing here. Theistic evolution. Theistic evolution. In other words, God is the creator, yes, but uh, God used evolution to bring about the creation. But that's a compromise, and all it does is distorts the scriptures. It tries to bring a bad theory and makes the scriptures harmonize with a bad theory. Let's develop a better theory that is more consistent with scripture and abandon evolution. All right? That's what we want to do tonight. So that's the model. And on a chart form here, we believe in not a tree, but an orchard. Each of these represents a kind. God created plants, and they reproduce after their kind. Hebrew word is men. Very specific. It is broader than a species. Think of kinds more in terms of like an example would be the dog kind. And all of the varieties of dogs. Dogs can interbreed. Some of them more difficult than others. But, you know, if you have interbreeding, you end up with a mutt. But you can uh, breed dogs to produce the different varieties that exist today. God created the dog kind. And within the dog kind... In the genetic code, there is the capability of ending up with all of the different varieties. There's a horse kind. There's a, there's a cat kind. And believe it or not, lions and tigers can interbreed. They've been separated for a long time. That is more difficult, but you can end up with a liger. I'm not kidding. That, that's, that's the name that they give it. Yeah. And that's true of dogs and that's true of like cats as well. And all of the varieties of cats can interbreed as well. Some of them more difficult because of the separation in time. But So we believe that God created the kinds. This is creation. So you have all these kinds, cat kind, dog kind, etc. Humankind, whatever. This is today. Now you can see that within these, you do have variation. Where you have different specific species within the kinds. That makes sense? So that's the creation model. So let's go back and now let's talk about the weakness of evolution and let's start at the very heart of evolution. Because if evolution does not have a mechanism, then you might as well abandon it. If you can't show scientifically what causes evolution, then you're just creating a fairy tale. You're creating a faith system that has to be believed. Now, it's a faith system anyway. But let's look at the mechanism, and what is the mechanism that makes it work? What was the quote? Well, time is an element of it, but that's not the mechanism. No, well, that's part of it. Mutations. Okay, mutations. So we're going to look at mutations. We're going to look at the mechanism. I'm going to give you the support that the evolutionist gives us, and this is the reason they believe in it. And when I'm done, you're going to say, is that all there is? Where's the beef? Because <laughs> it's you're going to see that it's, I call it superficial evidence. 
There's evidence that was used in the past to support the idea of evolution. Today, it destroys evolution. We're going to look at that evidence as well. And then there's a lot of other evidence, a lot of other data that is against evolution, and actually everything supports the idea of God as creator. So those are things we're going to do tonight. Okay? So, let's look at mutations. Mutations. Start off with a friendly face there. The reason I use that is because for many years, pardon me, yeah, many, many decades, that was the object of a lot of research, lots of research. Now, evolutionists have done a lot. In fact, I'm going to give you over 160 years of research primarily by evolutionists because they are so eager to prove their case. They've been studying this whole area of mutations for ever since Darwin, over 160 years. Okay, I'm going to give you the results of 160 years of research. I'm not going to give you the details of it, but I'm going to just give you the results. We don't have time. What are mutations? Well, mutations are sudden, small changes in the DNA. And this is a more recent definition of it because we know a lot about microbiology and DNA and genetics. So there's small changes in the DNA. The DNA is very, very important. This is why studies in DNA and genetics are just totally destroying the idea of evolution. You have sudden changes in the DNA code of genes, which are passed on to an organism's offspring. So the genetic code does, in fact, mutate or does change such that uh, those characteristics can be passed on. So I'm not discounting the reality of mutations. Mutations occur. We as Christians don't deny that. The question is... Are mutations an adequate mechanism to come to the conclusion that evolution works? Do mutations make evolution work? That's the issue. That's the question. Not whether or not they occur. In fact, here's an example on the slide itself of a mutation. Right? Count his fingers. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's as a result of something happening in the DNA to produce an extra finger. I'm going to show you some other ones in a moment. Ernst Marr, who is a world authority in this whole area of mutation, says it must not be forgotten that mutation is the ultimate source of all genetic variation found in the natural populations and the only new material available for natural selection to work. What he's essentially saying, for evolution to work, you have to have mutations. It's the only new material available through mutations. And in reality, it's not new material. So it's kind of an inaccurate statement. But the point is, if mutations don't work, you don't have evolution. That's the starting point. All right? Make sense? Got that? I underline the key words there. It is the ultimate. In other words, there's nothing else. And it's the source of all genetic. In other words, there's not something outside of mutations that will produce these changes. And it's the only new material available for evolution to work. Got it? That's a good statement by an evolutionist. Okay, there's... Another thing that's natural that 
denies the super. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Evolution obviously is a substitute for God itself. So, what does evolution require? There's another example of mutations. And by the way, these are photographs. I mean, they're, these are these are real people. They're not photoshopped. Uh, I think he's got more than ten. Uh, eight, 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 eight. Yeah, sixteen. Go home and check and see what you got. Okay, what does evolution require? What does evolution require in order for mutations to be a mechanism? Yeah, it needs time. Would you say support? Need a catalyst. Well, they do exist, so something causes them, but they need frequent mutations. You need a lot of them. And not only do you need a lot of them, but most of them have to be, well, not only frequent, they occur frequently, but you have to have an accumulation of many of them, but most of them have to be beneficial. Well, to be a true mutation, duplicate on the next on, say, your children? Well, that's that's the definition of it. In other words, they're passed on to other generations. But they have to be beneficial. And you have to have lots of them because they're small changes. That's by definition. Small changes, so you have to have one change, another change, another one, another one, another one, until you reach something that's advantageous. And you have to have many of them, and they have to be primarily good. And what I'm going to give you is 160 years of research that goes totally against that what they need. Yep. Well, uh, that's a good question. In other words, it has to give an advantage to the creature, according to evolution. In other words, an advantage that allows the creature to survive as opposed to whatever was prior that uh, died out. Okay? The whole thing is hinged on survivability of creatures. Survival of the fittest. Okay? That's what the, that's the definition that they would give for beneficial. Okay? This is what is required... I'm going to give you 160 years of the very opposite. And this is the conclusions, not of Christians studying this area, because it has been primarily studied by evolutionists in order to establish. And they're thinking, we need to establish this theory, and we need to prove that mutations is an adequate mechanism. There have been a transitional form that was found, transitional form from plant life to animal life, believe it or not. There it is. <laughs> That's Halloween. <laughs> uh, this is just as convincing as the theory of evolution, all right? That's just to make sure you don't go to sleep. Okay. By the way, I don't know if you've seen, I think these two girls, or one, are they two or one? I don't know. I think they occurred, They were in some show on TV, but they're still alive. That's a mutation, right? Okay, number one, they are rare, not frequent. Overall, they're rare. In other words, the DNA amazingly reproduces itself with few mistakes, if you will, few mutations in terms of the overall. It is very, very consistent in its reproduction. And just some numbers that uh, evolutionists give, you only have a mutation in one to every 10,000 to one in one million <coughs> gene per generation. That's rare. That doesn't provide what evolution requires. Or one in 10 million DNA duplications. Every time the DNA duplicates, and by the way, your body is duplicating DNA at a rate of millions while you're just sitting here. 
and it duplicates accurately. And next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about DNA and how complex it is. DNA is more complex than any computer program that man has put together. And supposedly it came about by random processes. Okay? So in other words, it's rare. The mutation, the occurrence of mutations are rare. The opposite of what evolution requires. What is the time of that? Oh, it's, um, frac- oh, no, 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 fractions of a second. While you're sitting, while I've spoken here, you, your DNA is reproduced in cells. I don't, I don't have the numbers, but many, many, many minutes. Okay. So that goes against the first requirement of frequent and also the many. Secondly, they're unpredictable. What evolution requires is that you have one step of a positive mutation that is beneficial that moves to another step that moves to another step and on until you have something that is advantageous. So you have to have a lot of positive steps. The studies show that you'll have a mutation and the next one may go in the opposite direction or it might go off, veer off in one direction and it's random. It's unpredictable. You can't predict what's going to happen with mutations. Mutations, you need to think of them as mistakes. They're mistakes that are taking place at the genetic level. So they're unpredictable. Here's another transitional form that shows how unpredictable evolution can be. Another transitional form, maybe. That's pretty unpredictable. Uh, Again, I'm just trying to keep you awake here. (laughs) Maddington says, C.H. Maddington, it remains true to say that we know of no way other than random mutations. The studies show that they're unpredictable. There's no other way than random mutation by which new hereditary variation comes into being. In other words, these changes in creatures. Nor any process other than natural selection by which hereditary constitution changes from one generation to the next. He's basically saying that this is random. You don't have any consistency. It's a random process, unpredictable. And that's verified by experimentation and observation. Most, this is key as well, most mutations are not beneficial. Most mutations are harmful. They're mistakes. So what counts as a mutation? You have the whole spectrum. You have some that are just... Just a small variation in the DNA that is insignificant, okay? Then you have some that are major that cause these great deformations. That's on the other end of the spectrum. So you have a whole spectrum in the area of mutation. You can have something like this. I mean, that's drastic, and that starts at the genetic level. Something happened in the formation of probably the very first cell there that caused the problem there. Uh, or something along the way, they probably should have been twins, and something didn't didn't break apart there to separate the two. Now you're you're a nurse, right? You don't know. Biology. Biology. Hmm? She is biology. biology. Okay, you explain I it. I think yeah, it was like twins were the eggs. Then it separates. it didn't didn't continue the separation. Yeah. yeah. Okay, but the point being is they are generally harmful. In fact, very few are beneficial. And even those that are beneficial sometimes are reversed because of the randomness. H.J. Mueller, another 
evolutionist, an authority in mutations, says most mutations are bad. In fact, good ones are so rare, we can consider them all bad. This is an evolutionist. This is the product of his research. So he concludes well over 99% are bad. So they don't help the evolutionists. It's not a very good mechanism. Fourthly, geneticists call these mutations, they cause what, what they call a genetic burden. And just to try to illustrate it, describe it, it's a burden that drags down the genetic quality of a species. And we can speak of it biblically in that the gene pool at the original creation was pure. Even the descendants of Adam and Eve had a very pure genetic makeup, if you will. This is the reason when Adam and Eve had children, the answer to where did they get wives and what, how did they produce children? Well, at that point in human history, brothers and sisters, by necessity, from Adam and Eve had to marry. But why are there laws today that uh, prevent you from marrying even cousins, brothers and sisters, and you know, within family? Say that again louder. Because there could be harmful mutations. Yeah, because yeah, it, it there's more of a propensity to multiply the defects in there and cause all kinds of problems. So incestuous relationships. That's why we outlaw them because the gene pool has. What the Bible teaches, there's a degeneration after the fall. And our gene pool today is radically degenerated from what it was even in the time of Noah. When, when Noah and his family, you have a similar situation as the creation. They could intermarry, the descendants of those families, cousins had to marry, but the gene pool was pure, and it's not until we get to the Mosaic Law where it's prohibited because the gene pool had degenerated over time, and it continues to degenerate. And it's true not only of humans, but it's true of the entire animal and even plant kingdom. The gene pool continues to degenerate. That's called a genetic burden. Question. There was, is there a, a difference after the flood and Noah's, for one of the better biological, than before? Before they did many hundreds of years, and after Noah's, yes. And so, was there a biological change? I don't think it was attributed so much to the biological change as more the environmental, environmental. yeah, the environmental, the overall broad environmental. There were probably some elements of a biological effect, but most of it was broader than that. You had all the UV rays and stuff that changed. Yeah, there's different theories on that, yeah. But you understand what a genetic burden is? It just means that our gene pool, the human gene pool, when you marry, you have more mutations that have had bad effects upon the gene pool, and over time it just gets worse and worse. It doesn't get better. That's the point. Second law of thermodynamics working in biology, getting worse and worse and worse. The consequences of the fall, that's what the Bible predicts. Things wear out. Things degenerate. The opposite of evolution. Evolution, you have to have positive uh, movement, you have negative. So it's a genetic burden. So you have a genetic burden. Not only are they harmful, but in medicine, mutations are called pathological. What does that mean? It's a big medical word. Well, that's only one form. Pathological means disease-causing. 
In other words, a lot of diseases are attributed to mutations. So it's looking pretty bleak for evolution. They're not only rare, and even those that do occur, they're unpredictable, so they're not necessarily beneficial. Uh, They're 99% harmful. Mueller says you can consider all of them harmful. It continually degenerates the gene pool. We call that genetic burden. And they cause disease. We call that pathologic. Fifthly, what happens when you have a radical mutation pairing, if you will, I'm trying to think of a better word, the creature is less attractive to mating, if you will, or reproduction. And in fact, if in severer mutations, oftentimes the creature is sterile as well. So it can't reproduce. So that's another problem. So you have the rejection. Now, to have a girlfriend with two heads, that's advantageous. Two brains, two different opinions, two thoughts. But uh, how many men are willing to marry these beautiful girls? Get two of them. <laughs> For the price of one. Advantageous, right? Yeah, you have to be a woman to do it. Well, this is what happens in the animal kingdom as well. You know, we use the word freaks. I mean, it's, I don't think those girls are freaks. I think they're just seeing the interview. They seem to be really nice kids. But it's unfortunate what they have to live with. And in the animal kingdom, they are shunned by others, so they don't reproduce. They don't pass on supposedly this positive mutation that is advantageous. And we know from genetics... You don't have an increase, number seven, you don't have an increase in genetic information. You have information loss. And what we mean by that, the DNA molecule is an extremely complex molecule that has lots of information in it. All that information is utilized to specify everything about who we are. Your DNA has some elements that produces blonde hair. Yours produces spiked hair. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, The point being is that your DNA specifies all that you are, not only physically, by the way, in a lot of other ways as well, but primarily all of the physical characteristics. And mutations are a loss of information. Some of that information is lost, and it continues to accumulate loss. That's why it produces genetic burden. So that's the result of 160 years of research in the area of mutations. Therefore, really, there's not a mechanism for evolution. It's simply a fairy tale, you might say. Lee Spector says, in all the reading I've done in the life sciences literature, I've never found a mutation that added information. And you can't, if you think about it, you can't add information to inert molecules. Second law, you're always going to lose something. Second law thermodynamics. So mutations are a fact. In other words, they're real. They do, in fact, occur, and they do occur at... A rare rate, but a significant rate, you might say. For evolution, it it is the mechanism, but we've just demonstrated that it it actually undermines evolution. 
For the creationist, it does what the Bible says, mutations are destructive and add to the degeneration of all things as a result of sin and the fall of mankind. So that's your summary on evolution. Gary Parker, he's a believer. He says to make evolution happen, or even to make evolution a scientific theory, evolutionists need some kind of genetic script writer. Now, in our day, uh, we could say, uh, well, I think he's still alive, but when he wrote this, this is before computer programs. But we would say evolutionists need some kind of computer program to increase the quantity and quality of genetic information does not exist. Mutations take it away. So that's your supposed settled science when it comes to mutations and evolution. So conclusion, no mechanism for evolution, and evidence of degeneration, exactly what the Bible tells us. So beware of natural selection, Frank and Ernest. Okay, so that's mutations. Let's take a look at the support. I'm going to have to Notice I'm running out of time here. Go quickly. And I put question mark with evidence. Is this really evidence? I call it superficial evidence. But this is what they supply. This is what the evolutionist says supports his theory. And you've probably heard of some of these. Maybe others you have not. But let's talk about them. A big argument that they use is from what we describe as comparative anatomy. Comparative anatomy. So let's look at biology here, particularly anatomy, and we could talk about embryology as well. This kind of illustrates what comparative anatomy is all about. And this drawing kind of depicts the bones of two very diverse creatures. And But the evolutionist uses this argument to say, well, look at the bone structure. You have a skull here. A little bit different, but you have an eye socket with a skull, and you have jaw bones, etc. You have this bone structure for the spinal column. You have the same thing in a horse. You have the rib cage. You have the limbs. There, is, and you have these similarities. Doesn't it make sense that somehow they're related? And by the way, this is one of the basis for classifying different creatures, classifying them as mammals or whatever from comparative anatomy. Or you might say, look at, look at all these diverse different limbs, the human limb, and the color coding shows, you know, the corresponding parts. They have different sizes, a little bit different shapes, but everything is basically there. The design is pretty much the same between a human, a cat, a whale, and a bat, very diverse creatures. So there's probably a relationship there, and if you go far enough back, you can find the ancestors meet somewhere back in the evolutionary time frame. So that's comparative anatomy. So the conclusion, similar structures mean that there's common ancestry. Similar structures implies a common ancestry. Okay? But, remember the little chart I showed you last week? We're going to look at the same data. We're going to look at biology. We're going to look at this comparison. <laughs> And we're going to say, yeah, there's some similarities. And by the way, not only in the bone structure, but the respiratory system, the reproductive system, many of these other systems, there are similarities. There's comparisons. The evolutionist comes from an evolutionary perspective with evolution in his background and his thinking. He's looking at the data. In this case, it's not geological. It's biological. And because he has a evolutionary set of glasses on, 
he comes to the conclusion, this is evidence for evolution. But we're going to look at the same data, and we know about Genesis 1, and that God created after their kinds, or they reproduce after their kinds, and we believe that God is a creator, then there must be a better explanation for what we can observe in the data. And my background is engineering, and I can tell you that there is a column probably behind that corner there that is supporting this beam here. And I can also tell you that every bridge has columns that support the structure, the roadway structure above with beams. Did buildings evolve from bridges or did bridges evolve from, uh, no. What do you have here? You have a similar design element that works for both structures. So instead of common ancestry, we can conclude, in fact, this is a better explanation, similar design points to a common designer. Make sense? So that evidence is superficial evidence. There's a better conclusion that we can draw from better information. And by the way, I could give you a long list of different areas, but the differences are more pronounced than the similarities, particularly at the genetic level. So the differences are far more radically different than the similarities. So this is a better explanation of the same data. Here's an updated version that you may have heard about. Instead of using comparative anatomy, some like to talk about human DNA, and they say that 90% of human DNA, you can find it in primates. Now, I think the number's a little high, but even if it were 95%, well, you would expect it to be because you have similar structures. You have similar bone structure, circulatory system, etc. So you have DNA that specifies all that, but the designer is using similar DNA in different creatures or different parts of the DNA. That makes sense? So this is just an updated version trying to impress you with microbiology, but in fact, microbiologists would, would dis dispute that as well. Comparative anatomy, microevolution, microevolution. Does microevolution occur? Yes. Yes, good answer. But don't call it microevolution because that opens the door. There's a better word to describe it. So let's look at this whole area, microevolution. Microevolution is there are some changes within species, different changes. You have black bears, you have white bears. Okay, white bears, polar bears, primarily polar regions, black bears in more temperate climates, etc. Yeah, yeah, other creatures as well. So the evolutionist says, well, that's microevolution. You don't argue with microevolution, right? No, we all agree. And yeah, we would agree. And then they say, well, if there's microevolution, does it make sense that there is macroevolution? And see, you've opened the door if you call it microevolution, because now he's just taking a little jump. He's making it look like a little step, believing in macroevolution from one species to another species. But it'd be the same, the same argument would be, do you believe that humans can jump 20 feet? Well, some Olympians can. They can jump from one point to the other 20 feet. Can you imagine that? Based on their ability to jump 20 feet, 
Don't you think it's conceivable that they could jump from uh, Los Angeles to Tokyo? <laughs> That's what they're saying right here. There's a huge difference between what they call microevolution and macroevolution. Macroevolution has never been observed. Yes, so-called microevolution exists, but we would call it with a different name. The examples that are used, these are very common. You've probably heard of the idea of peppered moths. They all fall under this category. I don't have time to tell you in much detail, but there were some observations that were made. And the argument was that they observed the evolution of these light-colored moths into dark-colored moths. They're called peppered moths. And supposedly, during the Industrial Revolution in England, they observed there were predominantly white peppered moths. And then because of the, the, the soot that coated trees and everything, the white moths would land on the tree, and they didn't survive because the birds could see them, and the birds ate them. The ones that survived were the dark colored, where the birds couldn't see them. And they did experiments, etc. And as it turned out, some of the experiments were doctored and not legitimate, and there were some other problems with the whole issue. This today is totally discredited, but that was used as evidence of microevolution, changes in moths from colors, and... Supposedly, if that can happen at this level, then you could expect that a moth can eventually evolve into something else. But they're still moths. But they're, yeah, exactly. Well, their point is they will be something else, the evolutionists. But that, you're right, they never become anything else, exactly. Okay. Another example were Darwin's finches. Same idea. Selected breeding, that's sometimes used by evolutionists. But they all fit into this category of microevolution moving towards macroevolution. So microbiology and zoology go against that. That's the evolutionary view. Or you have complete kinds. That's what the Bible teaches, Genesis 1. Complete kinds that have all of the genetic information. The cat kind that God created had all of the genetic information in that group or however many he created or two, if that's what he created, to be able to produce all of the varieties all the way from tigers to your little pussycat that you have at home. And all of the genetic information. And over time, we have variation, not microevolution. And you never have a tiger changing into a St. Bernard. So we have a complete creature with all of the genetic information that spells out the kind Within that, the possibility of variation that can result in different species, if you will, within the kinds. This is more realistic. In fact, this is more scientific. And genetics is confirming this idea. Today, there has not been a documented observation of one creature changing into a different kind, and there never has been. There is variation. We see that in the breeding process, selective breeding See that with dogs, etc. So that's a better explanation. Scripture teaches us that. Uh, we see that creatures adapt to environments and change, but it's all at the genetic level, and it's all within the specifications of that DNA within that kind. It's not evolution. It's variation. 
Thirdly, you can see all of that in the genetic code. You can see the genetic information that produced these, and we are unraveling the genetic code now of all creatures, and you can spell it out. In fact, you can have DNA analysis of you, and you can trace some of your parents, maybe predominantly European, maybe, descendancy, but you might have some African and what all else you might have. So you can specify all that and find it in the genetic information that can be evaluated today. No new species. Very important. That's what evolution requires. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Creatures adapt to fit their environments. They adapt to fit their environments. We do that too. We build air conditioners, right? Or heaters. Yeah. What question? Yes. Absolutely. There is no purpose. Exactly. Exactly. So microevolution, I'm not going to spend too much time on vestigial organs. It's totally discredited today. At one time, evolutionists could find 150 vestigial organs in mankind. And you know what vestigial organs are. They're leftover parts, appendix, supposed leftover parts from prior evolutionary stages, vestigial (laughs) organs. Not only appendix, but uh, tonsils. I don't want to give away my age, but when I was growing up, it was real common to take out your tonsils. That was last century. I'm 98, by the way. And it was real common because they thought, well, you know, no harm. It's just a spare part. It doesn't do anything today. We know better. But the Bible tells you all along that there are no spare parts. God doesn't make a mistake in his creation. But evolution says there's spare parts. Tonsils is an example. We think of others as well. The tailbone, remnants of our primate stage. That's evolution. Creation says, well, creation, as time goes on, we discarded the 150 because we know that they all have a use, including the tonsils. In fact, today there are virtually no vestigial organs that we could say are spare parts or don't have a use. All right? So we've discovered the use. And if you study these things on a DNA level, you can find out and you can oftentimes learn and trace what the use actually is. In other words, what is the use that was specified from the beginning? What was the use for some Pardon me? What the Well, like the tonsils we know are very important to the immune system. The yeah. The tailbone, without the tailbone, you couldn't stand up straight. It is a support base for a lot of the back muscles. And we found this true for virtually all of the vestigial organs. So it's not a good argument. But because the evidence is so meager, you still find it in high school textbooks. And there are fewer and fewer than expected. And the examples they give are poor examples. And if evolution were true, they ought to disappear. If they're useless, why do they just continue to be there. Well, they're not useless. That's why they persist. Another updated version, you probably heard of junk DNA. That's similar to vestigial organs. There's no such thing as junk DNA. It's just that we don't know what those parts of the DNA do. But again, geneticists, microbiologists, day by day, as they learn more and more, they begin to learn, oh, okay, now I've discovered, I thought that was junk DNA. I thought it was... (coughs) spare DNA parts, but in fact, it's very important to whatever other process that goes on. There is no such thing as junk DNA. That's a name that the evolutionist comes up with. 
this is an updated version to try to say, well, there's something that supports evolution. Embryology, this is another discredited evidence that was used, very popular about 50 years ago. The idea of recapitulation, recapitulation theory, this is totally discredited and abandoned, but again, it's also found in some textbooks. And I know about 10 years ago, some of us from Creation Science Fellowship, they asked us to evaluate public schools were going to change textbooks, and they asked us to evaluate the science books and give recommendations. So we gladly volunteered, and we went through these new textbooks that they wanted to use, and all of these arguments were in some of those books. We gave our recommendations. I think they ignored them, but <laughs> but anyway. So because the evidence is so meager, you'll still see these in at least high school textbooks, if not even college. Recapitulation theory is the idea that you can observe within the fetus, within, within a womb, of different creatures, you can see the different evolutionary stages that recapitulate that evolutionary process. Okay? The Haeckel was the famous supposed scientist that came up with these drawings and said, you can see evolution, even the fish, it progresses and it looks very much to a, a state, later stage, all the way, you know, pigs, etc., humans, they all look the same. They're just going through this evolutionary recapitulation phase. Well, further investigation has shown that his drawings are very fraudulent. He was an evolutionist that uh, was so eager to try to prove the point that he doctored the drawings. They're not real drawings. They're not re they don't represent real fetuses. So it's totally discredited, but like I said, it's still used as evidence. And that's the only reason I mention it, because in reality, you ought to just ignore that, but you still see it. So I want you to be aware of it if you come across it. Anthropology, another science that has a lot of problems with it, and we spent a whole hour on anthropology, but in essence, anthropology does not support evolution. They're always looking for a missing link, can never find it. They'll have a big newspaper splash, possible missing link found in Southeast Africa. And then, the, you know, all the little evidence they'll try to bring up and hype the evidence because of all of these things, 10 million year old bones, etc., somewhere in the evolutionary line, uh, missing link. And then the pattern is six months later, further investigation, other anthropologists studying it, other people evaluating the evidence, back of the newspaper, a little article, what we said six months ago, we retract, or they don't even say it that way, they say, well, further evidence indicates that maybe there's another explanation. Yeah, well, there's reasons why it's not besides evolution, too, yeah. But anyway, anthropology, and you've seen the charts and the photos, but all of the supposed specimens or categories of specimens, Ramapithecus, these are truly primates. There's not a single one that's a link. All of the Australopithecines, they're all primates. No missing links. All of the supposed Homo erectus, they're all human. And they're not in past evolutionary stages. They're all human, fully human. And then Homo sapiens, obviously, those are fully human. 
There are no human links. We could talk a lot about uh, problems in anthropology. Here's a cartoon to wake you up. Uh, your case was quite simple. Grandfather, great-grandfather, chimp, primeval sludge. <laughs> okay. And this is very important. Theologically, where we are going depends on where we came from. Very important. Did we come from the hand of God? Or did we come about as a result of random processes? Then we will end as a result of those processes running their course. But we believe that we came from the hand of God and we have a destiny with him into eternity. Is any of that evidence that we looked at substantial? That's it. I gave this presentation to our creation group here in Albuquerque, Creation Science Fellowship. And these are men that work, a lot of them work at Sandia, some of them Los Alamos, and they're engineers, physicists, scientists of different backgrounds. Not many of them biologists, but there were some, there's a couple of biologists in there. I asked them if they were aware of any other evidence in terms of these categories, and they basically said no. That's what they have. That's their evidence. I think it's superficial. If you look further at other evidence, particularly that evidence that they used to use and don't use it as much anymore, it destroys this theory of evolution. And let's take a quick look at the fossil record, for example. Darwin, in fact, himself said, if the fossil record doesn't support my theory, then my theory should be abandoned. And what we have found after 150 years after Darwin, it didn't support the theory in Darwin's time. He, he recognized the problem. But his great hope was, well, we just haven't studied paleontology long enough. And as we study more and more of it, it will eventually validate my theory. That was his hope. And that was the evolutionary hope. So now they're studying not only mutations, but now they're studying the geological column and the fossil record. We'll talk some more about this when we talk about the Genesis flood. But this is the results, again, of a hundred and some years of research in the fossil record. And what we find out is that we have an abrupt appearance of very complex creatures at the bottom, which supposedly... The geological record, and I'll show you a chart that represents this when we talk about the Genesis Flood. The geological column is a record of all of the layers of rocks. It's a record of the layers of rock that you can observe in different parts of the world. And we'll talk about the geological column. And they chart it in chart form. And they chart all of the fossils that are found in different layers. And supposedly it showed an evolutionary progress. There's a different explanation, a better explanation for that arrangement. But what they find at the bottom of the geological column, which supposedly you should only have what they call simple life forms. Next week I'm going to show you there is no such thing as simple life forms. That's a term that Darwin came up with to try to support his idea of evolution. But supposedly at the bottom of the geological column, you should see only simple life forms, but you find, and you should see more evolutionary progress, but you see an abrupt appearance of very complex life form. Geologists call that the Cambrian explosion. Any of you heard of that? Yes. The Cambrian layer is the lowest layer on the geological column that has 
significant fossils. They have found some microorganisms below that, but even that is sketchy. But where you have significant fossils is in what's called the Cambrian layer. And it's abrupt, very abrupt. Evolutionists call it the Cambrian explosion because all of a sudden you have life. And supposedly you had to have millions of years before you have significant creatures, but you have an abrupt appearance. Secondly, you have very complex forms. You have creatures with eyes and other very complex organs at that bottom layer. Okay. Thirdly, you have no transitional forms in the fossil record. There are some that are proposed, but you have to make a lot of assumptions and you have to fill in a lot of blanks. No transitional forms. No legitimate, real transitional forms. And this is as a result of studying over 160 years since Darwin and more. Okay, No transitional forms. Fourthly, you have inconsistencies. Supposedly, one layer, a lower layer, is older than a layer on top of it. And the next one is younger and younger and younger until you get to the top. Well, there's a lot of different inconsistencies. One of the major ones is sometimes you might have a layer that is out of sequence. It should be where it is in other places, but it has supposedly more advanced creatures in it, and it's lower. In other words, they're out of sequence. Well, what happened there? Did evolution kind of jump around? or you know, It's not a good explanation. So there's inconsistencies. And by the way, there's a better explanation for the geological column, an evolutionary long-age accumulation sediment. We'll talk about that in the Genesis flood. So lots of inconsistencies. And we also have the persistence of kinds. What we see in terms of kinds represented in the geological record are the same kinds that we can observe today. And uh, an example that I see in a lot of creation literature is studies on a bat. Uh, fossilized bats, you study the details of it, and it's no different than the structures of bats today. And there's the same with other creatures. If there's a evolution and you have survival of the fittest, those early creatures should have died out because they're not fit, but they persist. So what do evolutionists do now? Well, they, we have to revise our theory, and a popular theory today is called punctuated equilibrium. In fact, it came about as a result of another guy I'll quote here, and the essence of that is that evolution, rather than progressing steadily, evolution has these jumps. So you have a sudden appearance of life, and then you have a sudden appearance of these other creatures in a different layer but you have no progress in between. In other words, it's punctuated. And then you have a, a period of equilibrium where nothing changes, and then you have another punctuation called punctuated equilibrium because that's more what the evidence points to rather than this gradual progress from one species to another to another to another. Make sense? Mark Ridley says, in any case, no real evolutionist, whether gradualist, that's that idea of slow progress, or punctuationist, that's that punctuated evolution, uses the fossil record as evidence in favor of the theory of evolution as opposed to special creation. They've abandoned it because it doesn't support the theory. In fact, it destroys the theory. That's why I'm putting it in that different category. 
That's a good statement. That's an honest statement. Stephen Jay Gould is the one that came up with the punctuated equilibrium idea. He says, the absence of fossil evidence for intermediate stages between major transitions in organic design. In other words, there's no evidence in the fossil record for this slow progress. So there's absence of fossil evidence. He goes on, indeed, our inability, even in our imagination, and that's evolution. It's an imaginary theory. Even in our imagination to construct functional intermediates, in other words, transitional forms, functional intermediates in many cases has been a persistent and nagging problem for gradualistic accounts of evolution. Fossil record is a problem for evolution. doesn't supply evidence for it. Got it? What's the conclusion? Fossil record destroys the theory of evolution. And the fossil record actually supports creation science, and I'm going to give you some more on that later on. But what it does support is the idea is sudden appearance of creatures, no transitions. In other words, fully formed, fully functional creatures at every level, just as Genesis says. And it's not a time frame anyway. We're going to give a different interpretation. I've said that microbiology is destroying the theory of evolution. Michael Denton, he's not a believer. In fact, not sure what he is now, but he was at least an evolutionist. He may still be an evolutionist. He wrote an entire book just investigating not only his research, but the research of other microbiologists The name of his book, in fact, I would recommend it if you're in the biological, particularly microbiology fields, because it's an honest book. The name of the book is Evolution in Crisis. And what he does is he demonstrates that microbiology basically destroys the theory of evolution. He's an evolutionist. This is a quote out of the conclusion of his book, and he has a longer Quote, but this is the essence of what he's saying. He's saying, ultimately, the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less than the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. This is an evolutionist being honest with his peers and basically saying, this is a myth. Microbiology destroys it. So geology destroys it. Microbiology destroys it. Genetics destroys it embryology destroys it, and there's superficial support from other areas that is only superficial and there are better explanations for the theory of evolution. It is a myth. It is a failed theory, and it's nothing more than a faith position. And it takes a lot more faith to believe in it than to believe in a God that created all things, supernatural God. There's no mechanism. The support that they supply is superficial. The support they used to supply destroys evolution. And there's other support that we'll talk about that not only undermines evolution, but in fact supports God as creator. So in conclusion, we can ask a question. If this is the situation scientifically of evolution, why do people hold it? And why are they so adamant? And why do they protest? If you even try to introduce any other idea in any public school curriculum, 
because they don't want to have to acknowledge the fact of wrong and conclusions that there is no God. Very good. I think he summed it up very, very well. And that's the bottom line. It's a theological problem. It's a spiritual problem that we are facing here, not a scientific problem. In fact, why evolution? It is man's best explanation leaving God out. And man has to have an alternative explanation to satisfy that nagging guilt, that nagging sense of lacking of righteousness, lacking that that God requires. So it's man's best explanation leaving God out. It's a bad theory. Secondly, if God is creator, then all men stand accountable to him. And as our brother stated, men do not want to be accountable to God. That's right. Absolutely. Because we're accountable to him. That is the reason why people cling to it. Because otherwise, they have to answer to God. Okay, we have 10 seconds for questions. <laughs> Any questions? That, that's basically it for tonight. Thank you. If you get into a discussion with an evolutionist, you know, don't get, don't get emotional, don't get riled, don't get, get upset, just stay calm. The main thing to do is focus in and ask them. Give me the evidence for it. Show me, show me the evidence. They'll give you some of the things that we've talked about, and hopefully now you kind of have an answer to counter that. Okay? You want to close for us or have some sure. close for us? Didn't you say that this is online? Oh, I'm going to put all of this on my website. I put last week's, and unfortunately I had the recording too far, so the quality is not the best quality. This will be better because I'm real close to the microphone. Yeah, I'll put all this on my website, and you can go to it. The website, and I'll do all the other sessions as well. I've got a creation science category or tab there, and it'll be at the bottom. It'll be called uh, Science and Scriptures Seminar. You want to close? Yeah. Uh, I'll close with some prayer, and then we'll same time, same place next week. Lord God, we're so thankful to come together, most of all, for you just dying on the cross for our sins. God, we thank you so much for salvation. We thank you that you have given us your word, the Holy Spirit, um, that you've given people like Ray just a, a prompting to want to share things that you've taught them and led them in. And Lord, I know that in his teaching and the things that we're learning, we, you have expectation of us to share that with other people. So God, I pray that we would be willing to, to stand firm, Lord, that we would acknowledge you, that we would not be ashamed of you. And when the opportunity is given, that we would be willing to just have a conversation. And it wouldn't have to be confrontational, Lord, it can just be an opportunity for you to sharpen us and to allow us to show others that there is differences and that there are other possibilities. And God, I just pray that during this week, we would have a great week and glorify you in our choice making. Jesus, we give you all glory and it's in your name. Amen.